If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open to John chapter 2. If you don't, we'll have the, uh, the text on the screen this morning. Uh, you can either turn on your electronic device or open your paper Bible to John chapter 2. And I'll be reading verses 1 through 11. John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, I love that. (laughs) My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. (laughs) Don't you? You should read your Bibles. (laughs) But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. I want to, to, to step back for just a second and talk a little bit about this passage because it, it sets up something that we need to know about the Gospel of John. We've been kind of making our way through the Gospel of John. Uh, we're starting chapter 2 today. And chapters through, 2 through chapter 12, uh, folks who read the Bible and try to piece it together and understand the sections and how it's called, they call this section the Book of Signs, chapter 2 through chapter 12. And the reason they call it the Book of Signs is because in these 10 chapters, John lines out for us seven signs. And he chose these seven signs that Jesus performed for a very specific reason. And we find that reason almost at the end of this gospel. He kind of gives you an insight as to how he wrote this and why he wrote it the way he did. In John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, here's what John says. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So the, the person who's writing this is saying, listen, I picked these signs out for a specific reason, so that you would understand that Jesus is the Christ, and that by understanding that, by believing that, you can have life. Now, this is also getting to something that Jesus said. In the very center, almost the center verse of John is this verse, John 10, 10, where Jesus says his purpose. This is why I've come. Listen to what Jesus said in John 10, 10. I came that they may have life and have it how? Abundantly. 
So Jesus' purpose in coming was to give life and give it abundantly. John, who's writing this, says, the reason I'm writing these signs is so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing that, you will have exactly what he came to give, which is life. Now, John's gospel is written this way, and I want to show you a little diagram to maybe help you understand or get a visual, because if you're like me, you're, you're, you're visual. So take a look at this diagram that we're going to put up here. This is from John chapter 10. If that's the heart of the gospel of John, that Jesus said, I came, the reason I'm here, the whole reason, I didn't come to judge you, I didn't come to tell you God's anger with you, I didn't come to wreak havoc or, or, or bring about justice, I came for one reason, I came that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. That's his purpose purpose in coming. And then John says, look, look, I've written this account so that you may know why Jesus came. And the reason you can know that, let me tell you some of the things he did that point back to what it is Jesus accomplished. So he, he lines out seven miracles, seven signs. Now, Jesus did many other miracles. You can read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they recount other ones. But John chose these seven because of what they tell us about Jesus. And there are seven of them, and ultimately then at the end, an eighth, if you want to call it an eighth, would be the resurrection. Now, does the number seven sound familiar? What's significant about seven? Yeah, it's perfect. Where else did we come across seven at the very beginning of the Bible? Yeah, seven days of creation. And do you remember how John started the gospel? In the beginning. And then there are these seven signs that he comes out. Now, the first one is what we're talking about today, where Jesus turned water into wine. And honestly, this first miracle is not what we expected, is it? I mean, of all the things Jesus could have done first, I mean, healed a blind person, caused a lame person to walk, I mean, raised somebody from the dead. And the first thing Jesus does is perform basically a parlor trick that prevents some people from being embarrassed at their wedding. I mean, think about that. Jesus' first miracle is something that most of the people who were at the party didn't even know happened. Some, a few servants knew, his mama knew, his disciples knew, but nobody else did. And yet this miracle is the first one. Part of the reason I know this had to have happened is because none of us would have written it this way, would we? I mean, we just started out with a big miracle. I mean, like, I'd have started with Lazarus, because that's like, okay, let's just establish who Jesus is here. He is bringing people back from the dead. Do I have your attention now? That's not how it starts, and that's not Jesus' first miracle. And it tells us something really important about Jesus, though. So I want to take some time today to look at this very first miracle, because in this miracle, you see a snapshot, a foreshadow of everything that's going to happen. Everything that's going to happen, and there are three specific things that it tells us. It tells us who he came to be, what he came to do, and how we can receive it. Who he came to be, what he came to do, and how we can receive it. So let's take a look at this. First thing, John chapter 2, verse 1. John starts this out by saying, on the third day, a wedding took place. Now, he's, he's hinting at something here, if you caught it. John says this a lot, on the third day. Anybody know something significant that happened on the third day? Yeah, Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. Now, we don't know that yet. We haven't gotten to that part of the story. But remember, John is writing this years after Jesus, years after the resurrection. He's looking back, and he's looking back at all these things that happened. And the events that took place at the end of chapter 1 were three days before this happened. And John is constantly saying, hey, pay attention. 
I want you to know this is going somewhere. Something is going to come of this. On the third day, there was a wedding. Now, in a wedding, there, this was uh, different than our weddings. It's, it's difficult for us to really fully understand because we've got such a strong concept in our culture of what a wedding is. But a Jewish wedding would have been entirely different. It would have been the responsibility of the, the bridegroom to have this wedding party. And there would, it would have been a feast that would have lasted for days. People would have invited from all over. The whole village would have come. There wouldn't have been an invitation list. It would have just been, hey, there's a wedding going on. Everybody in Jacksonville come because that's how, that's how we roll. So everybody shows up for the wedding and everybody's coming in. But it was the bridegroom's responsibility to prepare the feast and have everything out. So everybody showed up. This party's going on. We don't know for how long. But, but they run out of wine, which is a major, major problem. Have any of you ever been in a position where you've hosted a dinner party, where you've had people over and you've run out of food or you've run out of anything, but you don't want to admit it in church. But if you can get a sense for what that feels like, if you've ever put yourself in that position and you know, like you're quick, you're calling Domino's to order some pizza or you're, you know, sending, you're sending somebody to Publix really fast to get some fried chicken. I mean, this is, this is a problem. And they ran out of wine. And so Jesus' mother, comes to him, and this is what she said in verse 3, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, when my wife makes a statement like this at home, she is not making a mental note for something that she herself wants to do. Okay? Listen, listen, if you are, all of you, all of you who are men, if you are married or you hope to be married, students, listen, when my wife says the dog needs to go out, she is not saying that she is going to take the dog out. Can I get a witness? The trash. Thank you, Jennifer. The trash needs to go out is a not-so-subtle hint that somebody in our house had best take the trash out. Some things have not changed in 2,000 years. Mary was a mother just like every other mother. They have no more wine, hint, hint. Jesus, you better do something about this. Now, Mary had extreme confidence in her son. She, she, most people think that by now, Joseph, uh, Mary's husband, had died. We don't know really what happened. The Bible doesn't record. But clearly, he is no longer in the picture. And as the oldest child, it would have been Jesus' responsibility to step into that role to provide for and care for his mother. Mary had obviously grown to become dependent on Jesus. She understood that Jesus was compassionate. She understood that Jesus was, com- was competent. And so she says, this is what needs to happen. There needs to be some wine. There needs to be something. Uh, something needs to be done about this. And look what Jesus says back to her. Woman, why do you involve me? What, what do you want me to do about this? Jesus replied. Now, we know because it says here that Jesus, this is the first miracle Jesus performed. So it wasn't that Mary necessarily thought he could miraculously do something. She just had confidence that he could figure out a solution to the problem. But Jesus, what do you want me to do? And then he says this, my hour has not yet come. Now, this is really key to understanding this whole passage and this whole first miracle. My hour has not yet come. What Jesus is not saying He is not saying that Mary, mom, you are forcing my hand here. That's that's how we might read it at first, that, that Jesus isn't ready to do a miracle yet. He's not ready to step onto the stage yet. That might you might have heard it that way, read it that way, even heard people teach it that way. But that can't be really what's going on here. Because Jesus, being God, 
certainly understood and knew what was coming. He, he had to know that they were going to run out of wine. He had to know what Mary was going to say and what Mary was going to do. And certainly, if Jesus didn't want this to be his first miracle, do we really think that he would have he would have altered his plan to make this his first miracle? I don't think so. I don't think that this was changing Jesus' plan at all. So what does it mean? What does the hour, what is this hour that has not yet come for Jesus? I think this hour holds, holds some important information because it, it, tells us, it tells us who he came to be, and it also lets us know what he came to do. So let's take these one at a time, who Jesus came to be. This was not Jesus' wedding. You're like, well, thanks, Captain Obvious. I got that. It's clearly it's not Jesus' wedding. It was not Jesus' wedding. This was not his responsibility. It was not his fault that they had run out of wine. The master of the feast, who is referred to in the story, was sort of a professional um, wedding party host that would have been somebody in the community, a friend of the bridegroom, who would have like, hey, like, sort of like a best man, hey, you're responsible to make sure everybody has a good time. So the master of this feast, the master of the ceremony, was going to fail miserably because the wine had run out. So the good times were going to stop. The bridegroom had not done everything he needed to have done to prepare for the wedding. He, he either underestimated the number of guests or he underestimated how thirsty they would be. I don't know. But, but something had gone wrong in the planning. But whatever had gone wrong, it wasn't Jesus' responsibility. It wasn't Jesus' fault. And yet, Jesus is in a position where he's the one who has to resolve the problem. That Jesus steps in to our circumstances and takes responsibility for our shortcomings. That he himself takes on the responsibility for for even a mess that we make up. Even a mess that we create ourselves. That Jesus came for a reason. And it's interesting that in this first miracle, John wants you to know, and I think Jesus wanted you to know, look, I came to bring joy. I came to bring happiness. There are a lot of people who don't associate Jesus with joy at all. And and I would just say, read the first miracle. That Jesus came and saved a wedding party. So that the guests could continue to have joy and have a good time. This goes back to what he said his purpose was. I came that you might have life, but I came that you also might have it abundantly. What does it mean for Jesus to give you abundant life? It's more than a life insurance policy. That he came to give joy and fulfillment and not just happiness, temporary happiness, but, but something that overflows in your life. Some of you have met Christians like this joyful Christians. And you're like, what is that? Because I need me some of that. That's what Jesus came to give. And so this first miracle isn't an accident. Jesus wanted you to know, this is what I came to give. I came to be the life of the party. Listen to this. Hundreds of years, 400 years before Jesus was born, there was this prophet named Isaiah and he predicted the coming of the Messiah. And we read his, at Christmas time, you know, we read and sing all the things he wrote about Jesus who would come and all these great things about him. But listen to one thing that he said about the Messiah that we often don't read. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6. The Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. That when the Messiah comes, get ready because we're going to have a party. 
This is something joyful. This is something happy. Jesus was a party man. I mean, this is why he wasn't liked by religious people. Have you ever pieced it together that it was the religious people who had the biggest problem with Jesus? First of all, Jesus seemed to have liked children, and children seemed to have liked him. Now, if Jesus is this dour, sour, you know, person that we sort of have this image of, this picture of this very somber figure, do you think kids would want to be around him? I don't think so. I think Jesus laughed a lot. I think Jesus smiled a lot. I think kids loved him. I think he loved children. He said, unless you come as one of these children, you can't have any part of me. Jesus attracted the children, but it was more than that. He was criticized for eating with sinners and tax collectors. And he did it over and over and over again. Jesus was constantly going to parties. He was constantly showing up. And he would be the center of attention. And there was all this food and there was drinking and there was happiness. And and standing outside the window would be the Pharisees, the religious people looking in like, he should not be having a good time right now. What is he doing? He can't be the Messiah because surely the Messiah would not come to have fun. This is wrong. Even John the Baptist later on would send a message back to Jesus' disciples and say, hey, why aren't you guys ever fasting? We fast. You guys never fast. What's going on here? Jesus came to bring joy. He came to bring fulfillment. He came to bring abundance. And we see that in this very first miracle. You see, there is going to be suffering. It's coming. We all know how this, where this story is going. Jesus is going to be crucified. We know there's going to be sacrifice. But that's not where the story ends. That's not the end of the Christian story. And we see in this first miracle a picture, not of the crucifixion, not of the suffering, not of the sacrifice, but we see a picture of ultimately what is coming, a party, a celebration. I love Psalm chapter 23. It's familiar to everybody, and we read it at funerals all the time. You know, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. But do you know that's not how the psalm ends? The psalm ends with a banquet feast. That he's prepared a banquet table before me. That goodness and mercy are following me. The the Christian story is about a celebration. It is about overcoming. And Jesus says, this is what I've come to give you. See, who he came to be. Jesus came to be the bridegroom. Jesus is the perfect bridegroom. Your, Your Bible is bookended with weddings. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, we, we see the very first wedding. It's a wedding of Adam and Eve. And the Bible says, and the two came together and they became one flesh. That they were created in the image of God, man and female they were created. They're brought together and there's this celebration, there's wedding. That's how it begins. It doesn't begin with the church. It doesn't begin with government. It begins with a wedding. And then you go all the way to the end of your Bible Revelation chapter 21, and guess what you find there? Another wedding. But this wedding is the fulfillment. It it is the promise that is to come. This is the wedding feast of the Lamb. And Jesus himself is the bridegroom who's coming. And guess what? We, church, we're the bride. And there's a party in heaven. 
And everybody's gathered around and everybody's singing. This is the culmination of where the story has been going all along. And if you follow this thread throughout the Bible, you will find over and over again that God wants to relate to us. God wants to relate to you, not as a shepherd to sheep, although that illustration is used. Not as a king to the subjects, although that illustration is also used. Not as just a creator to the creation, although certainly he is the creator and we are the creation. Ultimately, how God wants to relate to you, how God wants to relate to me, and how he wants to relate to his church is as a bridegroom to his bride. That God is seeking union with us. That we might become one with him. That's where this is going. That's the celebration that Jesus is is talking about. That when he says, my hour has not yet come. Human marriage is just a shadow of the relationship God wants with you. When Jesus says that he's the groom, he's implying that we're the bride. I I have the privilege of, of performing weddings um, and so I get to see weddings from a perspective a lot of people don't get to see them. And sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad. But, but one of the things that, that, I, that I really enjoy about a wedding is in the ceremony itself is when I stand and I notice how the groom looks the first time he catches sight of his bride. And... and and so while everybody else is watching the bride, because, you know, everybody's standing, everybody turns, I'm watching the groom. Because I can watch his face and know the minute she reaches a point of the aisle where he can see her. And in our sanctuary, I know where that is because Sherry and I were married in there. And so if we were in the sanctuary, I would know that it's on this aisle and it's about right here. If, we're, if we moved ourselves about right here, he can see her for the very first time. And that look in his eyes, that, the, the emotion, the, the realization, maybe even the fear, all the things that are going on there. I, think about this for just a second. That's how Jesus sees you. Let that sink in for just a minute. That that's what he's anticipating. That's what he's working toward. That he would see you the way a groom sees the bride. Perfect, beautiful. Now, we all know that's not reality, right? We know that. She is not that pretty. (laughs) Except you are that pretty. (laughs) I mean, there are hours and hours and hours of things going on to make that look that way. Because, Because, listen, because a wedding, come on now, you know this is right. Because a wedding represents something we hope is true. Don't we? I mean, a wedding represents something that we hope will be. But what if that thing that we hope for isn't about a human relationship, but it's about a divine relationship that is coming? Jesus says, hey, this is not my wedding, but it's coming. So it tells us who he came to be. He came to be the bridegroom. It also says what he came to do. Uh, It talks about in this wedding what it cost him as the bridegroom for the wedding. when, when, When he says to Mary, my hour has not yet come, this is a phrase that John uses throughout the Gospel of John. An hour always refers to Jesus' death. 
that Jesus is looking into the future and describing something for which the present is just a parable. Now, I want you to catch this with me because it's easy to miss. But in in verse 6 and 7, notice what Jesus says. When he gives the servants directions, he gives very specific directions. And and I want you to catch this with me. John chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. Nearby stood some water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Now, Jews had lots of customs and traditions that were all symbolic. And one of the things that they would do is they would go through washing ceremonies. And the idea was that we know, we, we know we're flawed people. We know we're sinful people. And if we're going to go into God's presence, we need to clean up. And so they would wash themselves in these jars. These jars were there. And it says that they, were, they held 20 to 30 gallons each. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Now, there's something happening here with this idea of this water that we all know is about ready to be turned into wine. Does anybody remember back in the Old Testament, since we're doing Bible trivia today, anybody remember back in the Old Testament where water was transformed into something else? Anybody recall? What was it? Blood. That's right. Very good. That, that there was a story of Moses... And in order to free his people, um, one of the signs that were performed is that the Nile, all the water was turned into blood. Now, follow with me for just a second, because coming up, we don't know this yet. The disciples don't know this yet, but John's writing with the perspective of time. Coming up, Jesus does something very interesting. He takes this Passover meal where bread and wine are a part of the meal. And as he's doing this, he takes the cup of wine and he says something about it. He says, this wine is something else. He says, this wine is my blood. Right, good job. This wine is my blood, which is poured out for you. And here, in this first miracle, Jesus turns water into wine. That, that this, this is going to cost him something. That in order for that bride to be as beautiful as she's going to be, Jesus is going to pay a price. He's going to pay the ultimate price. And and this this explains so much about what the Bible says about marriage. I want you to skip with me for just a moment into Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 and 27. Paul is talking about the responsibility of husbands and wives. And I want you to catch something that he says because this is so important. So important for us to understand about who Jesus is. And if we only read this as about husbands, then we're missing the point, both of Paul and of this story that we're reading in John chapter 2. Listen to what it says. Husbands, love your wives as who? As Christ did what? Love the church and gave himself up for her that he might, what's that word? Sanctify. Sanctify basically means to to cleanse, to make perfect, to make holy, to, to make worthy, all that. To sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That. Jesus is saying, my hour has not yet come. There is a, there's a price I'm going to have to pay. I'm going to pay it with my blood. And that is for the purpose, not of ceremonial washing, but of truly purifying, making holy, making sanctified. See, what he came to do, he came to give life, to give his life for our sanctification. That he came to trade 
his holy, perfect life for our broken life. And I don't have to convince any of you that our lives are broken, do I? We know that we're not perfect. We know that we mess up. We know that we have to put things on to make ourselves beautiful, to cover up the stains, to cover up the shame. But Jesus said, listen, I paid the price. Not so that you would appear holy, not so that you would appear sanctified, but so that you would be that way. That's the hour that he's talking about. That abundant life that Jesus came to give, the joy that Jesus came to share, it comes only by his suffering. It comes only because he was willing to sacrifice. He came to be the bridegroom. He came to give his life that he might sanctify us. And how do we receive this? I think this first miracle tells us that as well. The first thing that we do to receive this is we do exactly what the servants did. You admit that you're empty. When the servants came to Mary, they were desperate. They, they, their, their jobs could have been on the line. I don't know what would have happened had the party come to a screeching halt. The bridegroom would have been embarrassed. I mean, the whole town would have been talking about it. The servants were absolutely desperate. We have nothing left. We don't know what to do. We have no ability to do anything out. Doesn't desperation sometimes drive you to obedience? It does. There have been lots of times that the only reason you've been obedient is because you've been desperate. And you thought, I've tried everything else, now let me just try to do what they're telling me to do. You tried it your way, you tried it the world's way, you tried it Oprah Winfrey's way. I mean, you tried it everybody's way, and finally you get to a point where you're so desperate that you're like, well, hold on, maybe, maybe I should try it the way that I'm instructed to try it by the one who created life, by the one who designed life by the one who came to give life and give it more abundantly. And so this desperation drives to obedience. Listen to what Mary said to them. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I mean, I, I hate to make it overly simplistic, but what if it is that simple? What if the problems that you're facing, the challenges that you're facing, the brokenness that you can't find healing for, the emptiness that you can't find satisfaction for, what if the answer is what Mary said to the servants? Hey, this is my son Jesus. Do whatever he tells you. Just do that. What would it hurt you to try? I mean, some of you, some of you are trying everything else. You're spending thousands and thousands of dollars to, get, to, to find a solution. And what if the answer is simply, you reach a point of desperation where you admit, I'm empty, I've got nothing else. And then you simply do what he tells you to do. Admit that you're empty. Some of you need to begin there today. Today, you need to say, that's where I am. I'm taking the first step. I'm admitting I am empty. I've got nothing left. I've got no solutions. I've only got more problems. And every time I try to solve them, I only create more problems for myself. Admit that you're empty. But then notice the second part is, is the good news. Receive credit for what he's done. I love the way this ends because the, the groom in this story, the groom at this wedding, had no idea what happened. He had no idea that Jesus just saved his behind. Some terrible embarrassment. He didn't have a clue. The master of the ceremony, he didn't have a clue. Only the servants knew. Mary knew. The disciples knew. And so the groom took credit for what only Jesus could have done. That's the same thing for you. That's what he offers you. 
He says, let me do what only I can do, and you receive the glory for it. You receive the credit for it. Because that's what it's about. If you're empty, you don't get any credit anyway. But Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. I wonder today if some of you are ready to take that step. If you're ready and willing to say, you know what, I'm empty. And I've reached the point of desperation where I'm just willing to do what Jesus tells me to do. To put your faith in Christ and trust him as your savior. That he's the bridegroom. That he's the one who's come to sanctify you, to to do what nobody else could do to make you perfect and holy and worthy. That's what he's come to do. I'm going to invite the band to come up. We're going to uh, have a time of um, commitment and a time of communion together. Um, our deacons are going to come and they're going to find some, uh, the, the juice and the bread that's located around the room and they're going to be serving you in various places. And, and here's what we're going to do. We're, we're going to participate in an, an, an ancient 2,000 years and really even older practice of uh, the Lord's Supper. This is what the church would do to remind one another the, the price that Jesus paid. The, the bread, Jesus said, this is my body which is broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. The, the wine represents my blood which was poured out for you. The price that he was willing to pay, drink this in remembrance of me. And so this is not just a picture of the suffering of Jesus, but it's a picture of the promise of Jesus, the joy and the celebration that is to come at that great wedding feast that's still in the future, that wedding feast in heaven. So you're invited to come. Everyone's invited to come and participate. You can find, yeah, go ahead. You guys come on up and take the elements. You can find, come to these elements. It doesn't matter if you're from a different church, if you're from a different religious background. If you today are here to say, you know what? I have come to a point in my life where I know I'm empty and where I just trust Jesus to do what only he can do in my life. If that's you today, if you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're welcome to participate. But if today that's not your story, if your story is still a story where you're struggling to figure that out on your own, I would invite you to, to pray and just, and just think about, think about the possibility. What if it were that easy? What if it were, what if it were simply about recognizing your own emptiness? And receiving in yourself what Christ has come to do for you. I want to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Everybody's heads are bowed and eyes are closed. And I know for, for many of us, there are different seasons and stages of life. And we feel emptiness in different ways. But I just wonder right now, believer, non-believer, Christian, non-Christian. Today, if there's something inside of you that feels empty, would you just raise your hand just a little bit, even just the slightest bit of a raise of a hand. Yeah, there are lots of us, lots of us around the room that feel that way. Now, if you today are here and you have that sense of emptiness, but it goes deeper than just the circumstances you're facing right now, it goes to something much more profound. And you would say, you know what, I, I, I've heard what you said about Jesus and I would like, I would like so much to be filled, to be saved by him and I trust in him. Would you just raise your hand today? Let's, let me see who you might be. Yeah, several of us, several. All right, I, I just want to pray for you right now. And th there's nothing about this prayer that is magical. It really is about what's going on in your heart right now. Would you just join me in your
your own heart and pray this prayer. Lord, I come to you and like the servants, like the wedding planner, I'm empty. I've run out. And I come to say, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. I'll be whoever you call me to be. And Father, I commit myself to following after Jesus because he's the only one that can fill me up. I pray, Lord, that I would be your disciple, that I would follow you and seek to live my life to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 11 says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Just think about that for a minute. That his disciples believed in him when they saw this. When they came to understand what it meant. I can't imagine their mind was just blown as John, as an old man is writing this back, I can just see the tears falling down his cheeks because he did not understand it when it happened. But looking back, it must have it must have suddenly occurred to him. My hour has not yet come. Jesus has come to offer you life, and he's come to offer to you abundantly. And we gather together and have gathered together for thousands of years in the church to tell these stories that you might believe that he is the Christ. And by believing that you might have what he came to give you, that he came to give you free, but it cost him everything, that he would sacrifice his life that you might receive the life that he came to give, the abundant life. Father, thank you. Thank you for the sacrifice. Thank you that even though we would not have written this story this way, we would not have designed um, the first miracle to be this, and yet such a profound meaning. Father, help us, help us to understand it and to believe it and May it transform us, just like that water was transformed into wine. Lord, may we be transformed by the belief that Jesus has come, that we might have life and have it abundantly. Thank you for the, what it cost you. Thank you for being willing to pay the price. Thank you for making the exchange a beautiful exchange, but Lord, an absurd exchange. Father, may we live with the joy of knowing that beyond this story, beyond this temporary story, there is a banquet that's prepared, a celebration that is coming. May we live in the anticipation and the excitement of that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.